Hello and welcome to another episode of Southeast Asia Dispatches brought to you by New Narrative. I'm your host, PJ Thumb, and today we're joined by New Narrative's Editor-in-Chief, Jacob Goldberg, to have a look back at New Narrative 2021. But before I go on, New Narrative is a movement for democracy in Southeast Asia and we need your support. We are totally member-supported and if you'd like to join us as a member, uh, you can go to newnarrative.com slash join and if you'd like to donate, go to newnarrative.com slash donate. We need your help in order to be independent and continue to produce high-quality content that uh, unpacks all these important um, issues and the forces that shape our lives in Southeast Asia. Okay, today it is 16th December 2021 and we're coming to a close for uh, another eventful year for New Narrative. And uh, I'm here hosting Southeast Asia Dispatches for a change. And I'm talking to Jacob Goldberg, our Editor-in-Chief. Hello, Jacob. How are you today? Hi, PJ. I'm doing well. Great, great, great. So this is your first year in charge of New Narrative's editorial team. You joined us right at the beginning of January, and now you've come to a close for one calendar year. How do you feel? I feel great. It's been a really fun, exciting, educational year. Was it, was it what you thought it'd be when you joined? Um, in some ways, it was, in that I would spend a lot of my time reporting and editing. But what I didn't expect was that I would also play such a big role in shaping an organization. I didn't anticipate that as much when I applied for the job, but it's actually been one of the most rewarding parts of the job. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, when I thought of conceptualized new narrative, I always thought of it as a collective, right? And that's one of the core tenets behind new narrative that we believe in collective action, that we're stronger together. And so, you know, I try and give everyone in the team a voice and listen to everyone and everyone has uh, the ability to speak up and shape the organization but I also recognize that, you know, the diversity is, of views is really important. And just because you work in editorial or, you know, someone else works on just on community and marketing doesn't mean that you don't have stuff that you can tell each other and teach each other. So, yeah, how's, how's that been like coming into such a, you know, big and defining role and all the various aspects that you didn't expect Right. Was that was it was it really scary and intimidating or did you, you know, just really get very energized by everything? Yeah, that's right. I think it was scary when when I didn't really know how much to, I, how much I should say about certain issues, how much influence I should try to have over different processes in the organization, how um, how departments outside of my department operate. I didn't really feel like it was my place to tell other people how to do their jobs. But, um, <laughs> you know, that's funny because uh, when you're the boss of the company, everyone feels that they can tell you how to do your job. <laughs> that's true. And I actually, and, and uh, as the head of a department myself, I actually really appreciate when people to tell me how to do my job. So it took me some time to get used to doing that myself, being on the other end and, yeah, and once I got used to, yeah, sharing my advice, my thoughts, um, and maybe encouraging other people in my department and other departments to do the same, 
um, I think we started to work a lot more smoothly together. Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, I'm really happy how we communicate internally. And of course, uh, you know, it can always be improved. Um, but it's a sign of, for me, at least I believe it's a sign of a strong organization where people um, all feel free to speak up frankly with, with each other. But speaking yeah, I mean, of communication, you you haven't really had, how many members of the team have you met? I know I haven't actually personally met you. Um, I mean, thanks to the pandemic, but uh, has it been difficult leading a team that you haven't actually met in person? Well, before I joined New Narrative, I was working as a journalist in Myanmar and a bit in Thailand. And for the last six or seven years, I'd, I'd only worked remotely. I'd only corresponded with bosses and, and colleagues remotely. So I was used to that. But I think what was different about this role was that I was working remotely and I was the one who had to direct other people. So yeah, be, being completely remote did make that a bit complicated. I, there, I did have to get used to it. But fortunately, I was able to meet uh, many of our uh, team members in person. Uh, I, I've met our deputy editor, Matt, in, in Phnom Penh, and I've met a few other team members uh, in Thailand, where I live now. And um, I, and yeah, it made, me, it made me realize that we would be having such a good time together if we could share meals and share space with each other. And I, I really regret that we don't have the ability to do that. I've also gotten a lot of uh, comments from team members on my height. And one person said that I have a short person energy, which I guess I will take as a compliment. Um, so to clarify for our listeners, how tall are you? Um, 182, 183 centimeters. Right. But you have short person energy and a tall person body. That's Yeah, that's I'm a I see. reverse Napoleon. <laughs> Okay, but uh, tell me about, um, you know, what I really appreciated, right? You came in, you had a strong vision for what you wanted to do with the editorial team, right? So can you tell our listeners about that and then how you feel like you've done in the course of the year with executing that, you know, uh, the strategy and achieving the vision? Sure. I think what our readers and members might not know is that the behind the scenes are a mess. They are very frantic. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I was a I was a new narrative contributor and reader before I joined the team, and everything looked professional, polished, um, super pristine to me. Um, when joining the team, I realized it's 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 chaos back here, and that yeah, and that, that gave me a lot to work with actually because. Um, Part of that chaos is that we rely on we rely exclusively on um, freelance contributors for most of our stories, which means that if we want to if we want to cover a certain issue, we need to wait for someone to pitch it to us. And I think that as an organization that wants to transform Southeast Asia, that that can't be the ultimate goal. We need to be able to direct our coverage. We need to be able to set our own agenda and to do that. We need to employ people who can who can report on issues we want to report on, which means that we need to build a newsroom, which we haven't had before. Um, when I first joined, I didn't think that was possible. I didn't think that I could change the, the DNA of the organization. 
Um, but, you know, like I said before, I, I did learn that I, I, I could have, I, I could shape the organization in ways that I didn't initially um, anticipate, which uh, allowed, and so ultimately I decided to try to raise money to, to build a newsroom. And um, fortunately this year we were able to hire uh, some of our first reporters and we hope to hire more next year. And those, those people, because they'll be working for us long-term, they'll be key to us putting out stories that we choose internally that, are, that I and my colleagues and the rest of the team um, decide are, are important that can't be found elsewhere. And I think it's gonna help us produce the most original work we've ever done. Let me tell you, listeners, this guy has been on my ass the whole year. Can I say that on my, on my back the whole year? just telling me, look, we need a newsroom and you need to fundraise for the newsroom if you want a better product, a good, reliable, high-quality product. You know, at one point in the year, you gave me that, that slideshow, which, which got a bit tense because I was like, what the heck? <laughs> you know, um, But yeah, you're right, right? And uh, we need to definitely have more people on the team who write. We need to have better control of our own product. And I'm really pleased by how we've managed to slowly build that. And hopefully with, um, you know, some of the grant applications we got out there, some of the fundraising we're doing, we'll be able to bring more permanent staff writers on board. So, you know, that's, that's all you and I congratulations very much on, on um, you know, changing the, that DNA of the of, of new narrative to, to, um, you know, have have more have more of our own have more of a newsroom. So this year has been a year of many firsts. I mean, when I think about it, right, we've got our first like staff reporters hired. Uh, we have our first uh, original research report. We have um, our first like I think major award, or I mean, we've won some awards before but we got a major award from uh, an industry body. Um, you know, one IFRA gave us the best in audience engagement. And I think that's the first one from, uh, from a sort of journalism industry body. Um, so we've had a lot of firsts this year, I think. What are some of, what are some of the firsts for you that, uh, that stand out for you? Yeah, for me, the... The most important first is that we've hired our first reporters. Uh, like you said, that's going to be a huge step toward building a regional newsroom and giving us control over our investigations and our coverage. We also this year received our first SOPA award, which was an honorable mention for a story about medical waste in Cambodia. So shout out to reporter Jerry Flynn and uh, VOD in Cambodia who co-published the piece. Um, it was also a huge first to bring on our editorial team completely full-time. They've, all the editors uh, at New Narrative have until now worked part-time and we were able to raise money to bring everyone on full-time to give them more working hours to earn what we, what we hope is a, a living wage. And that was huge. It, without, uh, without a full-time editorial staff, it, our ability to produce regularly was really limited. Um, so that was a, a huge change for us, which I'm really grateful for. 
But what's what's been the biggest challenges uh, over the course of the year in um, apart from you know trying to implement this this vision and in terms especially in terms of unexpected challenges? I, it wasn't totally unexpected, but it was unfortunate and a bit startling that a few of our team members uh, got COVID, which um, you know we had to prepare for and accommodate for. And fortunately, everyone is mostly okay. Um, I think one of our team members still tastes things funny, um, but yeah, that I wasn't really expecting to to be in charge of a of a department where people would would be sick. I've I've always been just uh, a, a reporter myself, and and now I have to manage a schedule, so I had to learn that. Yeah. Jacob, what about the political challenges? I mean, new narrative, of course, we don't shy away from you know, taking on governments and we've taken on a lot of powerful interest groups this year and we've produced some really cool articles, right? Um, for example, there was the article about the forced disappearance of the Thai activist, Wan Shalom. Uh, there was the comic about um, the queer Muslim person. Um, there was the uh, expose about um, national um, unity government of Myanmar and their um, potential, you know, um, well, they're, they're taking part in training um, for, um, how would you characterize that? Violent um, sort of um, by tactics, violent tactics, right? Which might yeah. endanger citizens, ordinary people. That are indiscriminate. Um, yeah, indiscriminate violence. So for all of these things, we had challenges. We had a lot of pushback. Um, but can you tell me more a bit about how you you um, approach these stories to begin with, and how you find these stories, and then how you you know create these uh, stories while trying to ensure accuracy, impact, but also safety for the contributors? Mm-hmm. Sure. So yeah, all of the stories you just mentioned are ones that we had to spend a lot of time combing over going through each point, making sure that none of it could endanger um, any particular person, um, especially not our staff, our contributors, and our sources. Uh, We don't want to harm anyone, but the nature of the stories we tell is that we tell stories that challenge people's power, and certainly that could result in, in people's position or their movement being harmed, but we, we draw the line at making sure no, no people are harmed. Um, and that's really difficult. Like I said, we go through every, every point, every, every fact, uh, every location mentioned, every person mentioned, and make sure nothing is included that could lead to any of them uh, getting hurt, uh, getting, getting jailed, losing their jobs. Um, and I also keep a list of everything that we decide we cannot include in a story. I call it my, my censorship list. We're not necessarily being censored, but I do think it's important for us to keep track of the, of the things that would be in the public interest to report, but we can't do it because we don't want to lead to anyone's, anyone's harm. Um, and so, for example, we have not... We've, we've published pieces by contributors who are not named. We've 
published stories where sources are not named particularly uh, in Myanmar and in the case, and pretty often in other in other other parts of the region as well. Um, you know, it's not ideal, but but we have to keep people safe. Um, but during the reporting process, we don't, you know, we we try to tell the story the way it would ideally be told, and then we review it afterward. You know, I try not to go into it thinking of thinking about censorship or thinking about uh, thinking about the the unintentional harm it could cause. That all happens uh, after we've gathered all the facts. Cool. Okay. So that's well, one heck of a year. And looking forward, what can our members, what can our audience expect next year? More of these investigations, more hard-hitting exposés. What have we got coming up? And also, we have um, a Singaporean staff reporter coming on board. We've been very um, public and open about that. It's time for us to fight for freedom of expression in Singapore. Uh, where previously we've been more careful and circumspect. So uh, that'll be uh, another member of the team, another permanent member of the team. Um, but yeah, what, what do you have in store for us, Jacob? Yeah, I'm really excited about our new Singapore reporter coming on board next year and also excited to, to bring on more reporters, which I, I think we will be able to do next year. So what readers and members can look forward to is hopefully seeing the results of us building this regional newsroom, which means, of course, we're still going to publish the work of freelance contributors. They've, they've helped us build this organization into what it is today, which is invaluable, which is super unique, which I'm, I'm thrilled to be a part of. Even if I, even if I weren't able to build a newsroom, I would still love this work. Um, but in addition to that, we'll, we'll also be able to direct investigations uh, expanding democracy in Southeast Asia will require media uncovering facts, truths that the people in charge want to remain hidden. If we're not doing that, then there's very there's very little we can do to inspire collective action to expand democracy. So that's my my goal for the coming year. PJ, what about you? What do you think were the highs and lows for a new narrative this year? Oh, good question. I I think the definitely a lot of what you described were highs, but you know, from from me, um, I also from where I'm sitting, right? Um, the highs are also very much about how the company has matured in the last year. Uh, this is stuff that no one you know will see from the outside, but the way the company runs, how it functions now. Um, how much more smoothly things work, um, our expectations, the standards that we hold ourselves to, um, all of these things reach new highs this year. Um, and I think the best manifestation of that really is how uh, we were able to bring on the editorial team full-time and pay everyone decent salaries, you know, a living wage, and how um, I think me as a leader... I, you know, from where I was sitting, right, the first few years, financially touch and go, I was terrified of spending money. But I, in the course of the year, um, the team convinced me that, look, you got to pay better and proper wages, invest in the team. And um, 
only that way can we both a attract good talent, but also b uh, retain good talent. And I, I mean, it was a convincing argument. I went along with it, took a big risk because obviously we didn't have the money to pay for it in the long term. Uh, we had to start spending it. Hope that the quality then convinced grant funders, for example, or donors to then pay for it. And somehow it all worked out, you know, and we have the money and we continue to and have very concrete plans of how to continue to raise the money to pay these fair wages. And I think for me, big lesson, big learning curve. Um, but that to me is the the high, you know, the just the company as a whole maturing and becoming, um, I think we're, we're, I wouldn't call us a startup anymore. I would say we're actually, um, I don't know what's the stage after a startup, consolidating, maturing, right? We're not as full-fledged, um, institutionalized, of course, as, as um, I would like and as we would eventually need to be, but we're definitely past startup mode. We have a track record. People recognize what we do, we do, and what we do, we do well, and we take care of our people. So I think all of that collectively, um, you know, from, from my position is the high. Uh, but of course, the lows are, are um, you know, the, the scariest bits were, were getting there, right? Change is difficult. Um, and we had some turnover this year. Um, fortunately, you know, there was no drama in any of it, um, but people move on. And that's one thing I've also had to learn is that, um, especially since all of you are so much younger than me, right? Uh, many of you will move on and you deserve to move on to bigger and better things. And maybe you'll start your own things down the road and you'll always be friends and you'll always be, you know, valued former colleagues. Um, but people will move on. And especially in this, in this you know, 20... Uh, 21st century sort of, you know, no one stays in the job their whole life. So I think for me, um, it's not so much lows, but just like coming to terms with that, that change turnover is normal. Um, and I think a lot of the team that helped me get through year two and three are moving on and I'm going to miss them, but we've got a fantastic team now. And, uh, you know, the kind of the quality, the caliber of the people we're attracting is also very, very high. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that was, that was um, sort of a low, but also knowing that people are going on to better things, right? Um, for example, Mincy or Eric, they're both going on to do to better jobs. And Mincy to a master's, Eric to a, a, a cool new role. And, um, you know, I'm so happy for them and still in touch with them. So um, it's, I guess it's also a high because it shows like people grow within our organization and, and can then move on and aspire to better things. Yeah, I should add that bringing on editorial full-time was one of the things that I didn't really think was worth proposing because they had spent years working on a part-time basis and who was I to try to change that, especially if we didn't really have the, the money in the bank for it. Um, but we raised money to do it after I proposed it. So thanks PJ for getting on board with it. I know it was scary and risky, but it's really essential. 
Yeah, I think um, credit has to go to Matt for fighting for that as well. Um, you know, our deputy ed- editor. So he's been around uh, quite a while as well. Started as just a consulting editor, worked his way up. And um, I think, you know, we have to give him credit for fighting for it and for everyone else in the team who fought for it too. Yeah. There was some other drama this year, maybe not as dramatic as you getting uh, puff mud in, in previous years, but you had to, you felt you had to leave Singapore. Um, well, no, I didn't, I didn't feel that I had to, uh, but yes, I, I've moved to Manila as I think many of our members um, who have been listening to our, to political agenda are aware. I'm now living in Manila because my wife got a job. Uh, she's a professor in political science so uh, yeah, we left halfway through the year, and um, definitely, you know, when you talk about in the previous question, I was about lows, you know, the the constant harassment from the PAP government, um, the harassment through the police system, through the courts, right, through regulatory harassment was really exhausting and really getting to me, and I think my mental health was really suffering in the first half of the year, so. Um, leaving Singapore actually um, was turned out to be a really, really good thing. It's always scary to change countries and in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, the logistics involved of a move in the middle of a pandemic were very intimidating, um, especially two things, finding a school for our son, um, but also moving Lisa, the Malayan sun dog, because uh, she can't come with us to quarantine. But, uh, you know, she made it over in one piece and um, is very happy to be with us again. So, uh, yeah, but yeah, definitely scary moving to another country in the middle of a pandemic. But, um, and you know, sadly, this is what Singapore does to its dissidents, to the people who disagree with the government. They, they just crush your spirit relentlessly, right? They leave you physically whole, but they will make your life a living hell. And it really grinds you down. And it's only through coming to Manila that I've really found the space to breathe again and um, recovered a lot of my mental health. That's great to hear. Do you miss Singapore? Oh, I miss my friends. I miss my family. I miss the people. Um, But, you know, if I were to go back, I'd be subject to so much harassment that it's it's a bit hard to miss to miss that right yeah right so with all of the the changes in our in our team that you've uh, that you've described um, what do you what are your hopes for 2022 and what can our members expect well you know again from where I am, I'm focused on building an institution. Um, and I want to help you build that newsroom. But I, all the different departments, um, I want to help them build and consolidate. Um, at this point, I should also mention the research department. I think that was a high. We got that started. Um, and we put out a research report that I think will really contribute to the democratic discourse in Southeast Asia and also help us understand the, the field, the sea that we swim in, right? The um, media freedom is really, really important, but I think it's often understood from the perspective of 
uh, non Southeast Asian, you know, um, analysts and researchers and viewers, um, which is true for Southeast Asian studies as a whole. Quite sadly, Southeast Asia, the center of Southeast Asian studies as a whole is Europe because of the colonial legacy, because Southeast Asian governments aren't terribly interested in actually interrogating truths. They're more interested in propagating their version of the truth. Uh, so starting a research department populated entirely by Southeast Asians to look at important issues related to democracy um, that are relevant to the people of Southeast Asia, that was for me a big achievement. I'm very pleased with, with how that went. And I have big plans for that. Um, and you know, I'd love it if um, more Southeast Asians would be willing to step up and fund that research um, so that we can understand Southeast Asia from our own perspective. And I think that is something else I want to keep uh, working and developing. Uh, of course, research is expensive, so you know, we'll have to see whether I can fundraise for that. And the rest of the team, art and design, the kind of work that um, our art and design manager, Alina, has been doing, right? We're going to grow her team. She's been pretty much a one-person department for a while now, but we're going to grow her team. We're going to get her a uh, deputy in the um, in that in the department to do more of this really cool work. Um, you know, uh, her visual design has drawn so much praise. We're going to grow the community team. We have, you know, someone very talented coming on board. So I'm very excited about that. Um, so yeah, I just continue to grow and consolidate the organization and get it to a point where uh, it is self-sustaining and um, hopefully, you know, we'll get more members so that we don't have to rely so much on external grants and donations. So that, that's my goal for the next year. Um, and if we can get to a point where we are more secure in our finances, then I'll be able to do more of the writing that I, I love and I know our members love, like the show of PJ Thumb. Uh, and I want to revamp, um, you know, revise the History of Singapore podcast and re-release it because there's been so much that I've learned in the past few years since it first came out, um, new research that I've done that I want to add to it. So I think those are two things in particular that I'd really love to do in the next year. But of course, it, you know, in order to do that, we need to get to a more secure financial footing. So for those of you who are listening and if you'd love to see more more of the show PJ Thumb and um, you know it's sort of a history of Singapore 2.0 and and beyond right continue that podcast beyond and more work from me do join us join us as a member or donate so that we can get to the point where I can spend more time writing and less time fundraising and trying to figure out ways to raise money. Okay, so at this point we put out a request for questions for both of us on social media. So let's turn to those. And question one is hmm, why should people pay for news if they can get it for free elsewhere? What do you think, Jacob? I have very strong opinions about this, but you know, you're the newsman, so you start. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I wish nobody had to pay for news because I see our journalism as a public service. And as soon as we have a number of members who are sustaining us so that we don't have to rely on outside grants or donations. Um, I hope nobody will have to pay for the journalism we produce. It's a public service. We're trying to uncover truths that are being hidden from, from you all that we believe you have a right to know and, and then act on that. Um, so ideally, you, and hopefully soon, you won't have to pay for it. But I also think that 
you can't find the work that we do anywhere else. One of the most common points in the feedback we receive is that no one is looking at Southeast Asia the way we are. No one is including so much research into the stories like, like we do in ours. No one is uh, being as critical as we are of, um, of the structures that, that, that govern people's lives in Southeast Asia. Okay, so let me interrogate that a bit. Because when you say that if we can reach uh, a certain number of members become sustainable, then nobody would have to pay for it. You mean we're going to drop the paywall? Yeah. But the members will still be paying for it, right? Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, ultimately, everything has to be paid for. Nothing's free in this world. And um, the the challenge, I mean, the, the, the problem with the question is you don't actually get news for free anywhere. Someone's paying for it. And if the news seems to be free, then you're actually paying for it in terms of advertisements and more importantly, in terms of your personal private data, your browsing data, you know, your purchasing data, your internet history, that's what you're paying for when news is quote-unquote free, right? New Narrative doesn't do that. We don't have ads. We don't have, I think the only thing we have on our website is Google Analytics or two analytics packages, right? But we don't track people and we deliberately don't use um, a lot of the standard technologies that uh, companies use to track their readers to get more data. Um, and we therefore are unable to sell that data, right? But for most people, um, the news, I mean, for, for anyone, the news isn't actually free. You're just not paying directly in money. You're paying in terms of your privacy. You know, and I think the second thing you, you said is very interesting, public service, right? And actually, the news is a public service. Good, fair news that um, holds power accountable is a public service. And I think it's very important for people to realize that when the way that, that news has been privatized all around the world, but definitely in Southeast Asia, means that the news is bent towards the interests of those private funders rather than the public and if you want news that works for the public interest, then you get to, got to have as much of the public pay for it as possible so that, because ultimately, right, the, the news organization or any organization is going to um, serve the funders. So we need the public to fund new narratives so that we work in the public interest. PJ, the next question is for you. What Taylor Swift song would you use to describe the political climate in Singapore? <laughs> hey, who sent that one? No, no, never mind. Don't tell me. Uh, okay. Tough question. There's a lot of songs. I think the song that best describes... Okay, there's a, a multifaceted, right? The political climate in Singapore. Okay, okay. This is what I'll say. Uh, I will pick... You need to calm down. Because when I listen to a lot of these Singaporean politicians, and in particular, my best friend, Sean Mugam, right, they are so way over the top about what's going on in Singapore in both directions. Singapore is either the best, most perfect, wonderful country, or it's in a state of almost going to fall over into chaos you know, teetering on the edge. And in both 
scenarios, you know, they then follow up with, and that's why you should vote for the PAP, and that's why we need to crush the opposition and people who disagree with us. I yeah, so you need to calm down. That song is really, you know, Taylor's message to all her haters online who are just going way over the top. You know, I I mean it starts like you are somebody that I don't know, but you're taking shots at me like this petrol. I'm just like, damn, it's 7 a.m. You know, her message like randos on the internet attacking her, right? And I sympathize because I get that, like the PAP's internet brigades attacking us. Um, attacking people who disagree with the government online, just weird random accounts, you know, created a week ago with one follower, right? No profile photo, just slamming us and calling us all sorts of, of things, you know? So I think we, yeah, we all just really need to calm down. Okay, I think that's all the time that we have left. So thank you very much, Jacob, for taking the time out of your day to come talk to me and uh, be on Southeast Asia Dispatches. And uh, thank you to the listener for joining us today. Thank you to all our members for supporting us in 2021. And, um, you know, thank you to all of you who have supported and contributed to New Narrative in some way. We are here because of you and we will continue to fight for you and for Southeast Asian democracy. Okay, so remember, if you want to join New Narrative, we really do need your support. Go to newnarrative.com slash join. And if you want to donate, go to newnarrative.com slash donate. So a big thank you from me and a big thank you and goodbye from Jacob. Thank you. And uh, take care, everyone. See you in 2022.